Hello, and welcome to Quovadis Institute's Rethink, a podcast that will supply you with thought-provoking approach to and reflection on some of the most challenging issues of our day. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Andrzej Turkanik, and I am the Executive Director of the Quovadis Institute. I am pleased to welcome to our continued conversation two medical doctors who both are practitioners and scientists representing different medical disciplines, generations, and countries. They both join me now from Canada, Quentin Jenis, who is a resident at the University of British Columbia. Hi, pleasure to be with you again. And Professor John Wyatt from London. Hi, it's great to be here. So in our second installment, uh, we're still in the midst of a crisis. Um, We are looking at some of the major shifts in how we practice medicine. How do we live among the lockdown? Uh, Somebody has referred to this as though we are at war, but only a fraction of us are actually participating on the front lines. And uh, in our first uh, session, we talked about some of the challenges that the medical uh, professionals are facing today. And uh, I want to continue this conversation. Um, And uh, we've started talking about some of the ethical challenges that we're facing. And I want to put it out to you, gentlemen, to talk to us about some of the things that you're seeing. Yeah, I think... It's really interesting times from an ethics point of view. I think that for a long time, the the developed world has tried to outrun a lot of ethical challenges by investing in resources. And what I mean by that is you never have to decide which patient goes on a ventilator if you have enough ventilators for everybody who needs one. And I think in many ways, that's been a a good solution uh, on the ground to try to outrun those inherent challenges um, with resources. But I think we are facing a situation now where those challenges of limited resources and needs that outpace those resources are coming to the fore again. And they've always been present, say, in transplant medicine, um, in our practices of medicine to some degree, but they are going to be now widespread in every emergency department and every intensive care unit. Um, And they present what are for most practicing physicians questions that they've never faced clinically before. Yeah, so I've always been very interested in medical ethics and it's always been known for, uh, you know, as long as it goes, as long as medicine's been around, that, that at times you have difficult decisions about resource allocation. But the primary focus for medical ethics for the last decades has been that it was always putting the patient's interests, the individual patient's interests first. And um, how else could you be trusted as a physician unless the patient knew that whatever decisions were being taken were in your own individual best interests? But it's been known that uh, of course in a time of war when medical resources were completely overwhelmed then different rules might apply mm-hmm. and and so this concept triage french word of of dividing into um, different sections and rules um has always been part of of army medicine military medicine so now we're in a uh, warfare with a virus and 
Uh, certainly what's happening in the UK is a whole number of bodies have been uh, desperately racing to try to create new ethical frameworks that would apply uh, w- if we ever get to the situation where our intensive care resources have become completely overwhelmed. Yeah, and and certainly those are really challenging questions and those same conversations are happening in, in Canada and I know in the United States as well. I think one of the really interesting and, and challenging conversations is um, there's been some people, some who have proposed um, placing essential workers, so to speak, as higher on the ladder um, of receiving care than people who don't perform essential roles. And um, even another, um, yeah, other examples in in the States of, of sort of stratifying people based upon their productivity um, with respect to society. And certainly as a, both as a physician and, and also as a Christian, I'm concerned about those kinds of movements while at the same time recognizing um, that in many cases we will be between a rock and a hard place and, and we do need to find ethical solutions. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, if you take a sort of classic uh, utilitarian approach of um, maximizing um, good outcomes and minimizing bad outcomes, um then there is an argument that says if you are, as you say, between a rock and a hard place and your choice is uh, whether you give the last ventilator to this person who's an emergency worker or whether you give the ventilator to someone who is low down on the social scale, um, that you should give it to the emergency worker and that this will lead to overall the best outcomes. But like you, I, I'm deeply uneasy about that. And in fact, I think I'd go further and say I think it's wrong. Um, partly because certainly in the UK, there, there's a great deal of goodwill towards the National Health Service. But there's an implicit social contract that's that every member of the community uh, pays through general taxation um, on the understanding that the National Health Service will provide healthcare, which is provided in a genuinely equitable and just way. And I feel that if it became known that certain groups of people were being preferentially treated because of their social status or or perception of use of of, of use in society, this would be actually deeply corrosive and damaging to the level of trust. Uh, that the health service is is held at the moment. And so although theoretically you might benefit by a few extra lives that were being saved, I think you would do it at the cost of a deep um, damage to the, to the level of trust. So justice, uh, the concept of justice, that everybody is treated fairly and justly, irrespective of their, quote, value to society, this is absolutely central to modern and actually traditional understandings of justice. And I want to defend that to the, to the last hilt when it comes to the health service. Yeah. And I certainly would, would agree wholeheartedly with that. I think it also raises interesting questions of the way our society sees the value of a human being. And I think that, as I was saying earlier, I think that we've tried to outpace 
many of these difficult questions by adding resources. But it's only a small distortion of that to believe that resources and money are themselves the answer to ethical problems. And the way to have good societies is simply to have robust economies. Um, and uh, the, I think it was the governor of Texas was on national television, as I'm sure you know, last week or the week before, sort of talking about elderly people, you know, voluntarily sort of sacrificing themselves for the economy, for the good of their children and, and grandchildren. And this idea that um, people, a huge component of our value comes in serving the economy and preserving robust economies. And I think that, again, both as a physician and, and also more fundamentally as a Christian, um, anybody who sort of propagates that view of the human being, I think that there's real value for deep erosion um, of the way that we see ourselves and our patients. And we need to find ways to protect against those kinds of ethical assertions. That's right. And in fact, you know, you can go all the way back to the classical era, to the areas of, of Greece and Greek and Roman ethics, that basically it did hold that view. It held the view that people could be valued according to their um, social contribution. So um, to be a soldier, to be a farmer, to be a mother, these were valuable social roles. But if you didn't um, meet that if for some reason you were uh, you had a chronic illness you were disabled uh, you you were otherwise regarded as as useless and 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 it was really the advent of Christianity uh, in the ancient world which which really introduced a, a totally novel concept and that was that every human being had a unique and inalienable value that was that was irrespective of their social function. And it's interesting how you can trace that, its roots in, in that Christian uh, view, which goes all the way um, over 20th centuries to the present. Um, and it's it's almost as though we're being challenged to go back to that other ancient ethic, the Greco-Roman ethic, that values people according to their social worth. Yeah, totally. And I think there's, there's all kinds of resources to draw. I know you've written about um, early Christian physicians and some, you know, contrast between Christian physicians and some aspect of the Hippocratic tradition, where there was real value in in Christian physicians right from the beginning of treating everybody the same and respecting inherent human dignity and um, caring for the dying and meeting their needs, what we might now call palliative care, even if their prognosis was poor. Um, that's right. Fascinating accounts from the early plagues um, in the second and third century after Christ, where, as you said, the the standard response of the Hippocratic physician faced with plague, it appears that what they did is they ran for the hills um, and uh, in order to save their skin. And in, in fact, there was a, a sort of general adage in the Hippocratic writings that you should never care for a dying patient as a physician, mm. um, basically because it would be bad for your professional reputation. Um, and how, how would people come to you if, if your patient was, were, were dying? Um, so what was these extraordinary first-person accounts of, of what actually happened um, was that in this early 
period of, a, of the early Christian church was that Christians, most of them lay people, not, not professionals at all, uh, at time of plague went out of their way to care for um, strangers, neighbors who were dying, bringing them into their homes, providing basic nursing care. And in fact, many of them sacrificed their lives um, in order to care for um, the the strangers in their midst. And um, interestingly, uh, a sociologist of, of religion uh, who has looked at the rise of different religions and has looked at particularly at the rise of the Christianity in those first centuries, he argues that the ways that Christians responded at those times of plague were actually a very significant uh, factor in the explosive growth of the Christian church in that period. Yeah, and I think it's, it is important to to recognize that and to, to sharply demarcate between that Christian view of the person and that Greco-Roman view of the person that, that now, as you say, is is on the on the table again in terms of some ethics conversations. Um, I'm I'm always drawn when I think about this conversation to the life of Mother Teresa. And and she describes when she was a young girl, her mother would invite, every week they would invite people who were poor or impoverished or otherwise, otherwise suffering to have supper with the family. And her mother would say, here comes Jesus in his most distressing disguise. Um, and then she was later quoted as telling her nuns in the Houses of Mercy in India, whenever they see someone who's who's destitute or dying, suffering, brought in off the street, um, from the lowest castes of that society to say to themselves, um, here comes Jesus in his most distressing disguise. And I think that um, there's been a long tradition in Western medicine to, again, have this sort of patient-centered care that in many ways dovetails very nicely with that notion. Every single person, irrespective of their um, you know, age or, or gender or socioeconomic value or whatever, that we we assert and we recognize and advocate for their value um, and their inherent dignity, irrespective of circumstance. Um, and I think a situation, a crisis like this will have done a lot more damage um, if it pushes people away from that worldview. Yes, I too have been heavily influenced by Mother Teresa and her writing. And I can remember once when someone asked her what was it that motivated her to go out into the streets and and, and care and bring in these uh, people, beggars on the streets of Calcutta, many of whom were in a horrific situation. And, and she said, it is more than pity that motivates us. It is compassion mingled with respect. Mm. And... It's that hallmark of respect, which I think is such an extraordinary um, thing that um, it's it's a recognition of the the value, the worth, the dignity of of someone who, from any objective criteria, seems to be um, almost valueless. And um, certainly for me, working uh, sometimes with extremely premature or severely brain damaged babies that thinking uh, had a huge impact on my own clinical practice that I had to treat this tiny little shrimp um, struggling for life with tubes coming out of every orifice with the same kind of 
both compassion but also respect um as Mary and Joseph would have treated their little bundle in the in a stable in Bethlehem and that certainly for me is one of the constantly compelling and and beautiful things about being a person of faith I always think when I was a medical student, one of the hospitals I trained in was a Catholic hospital, um, but was sort of operated out of the public system. And I remember one of the physicians saying when he was orienting the medical students, he, he pointed to a patient's bed and all the patient's bed had crucifixes above them. And I remember him saying to us, I want you to know that just because there's a cross above the bed, it doesn't change anything that we do. Um, and he was sort of this, you know, very secular, sort of cynical, older physician who was you know, not super enthusiastic about the Christian roots of the hospital. But I've reflected so much on that in that a institution deliberately placing a crucifix over the bed of the patient is a reminder to the Christian physician, this is the person who we worship. And in in the Greco, in the context in which he lived, he would have been the picture of a despised person up on this sort of this this instrument of torture that was you know too horrific for most people reserved only for the lowest of the low suffering and dying and despised and mocked um, and there can be no suffering in the patient who lies below that crucifix that's alien to Christ um, and so the crucifix hanging silently on the wall stubbornly assert that we can never ever disregard that patient or their value yeah that's an amazing uh, image and uh, you, you're absolutely right and yet it sits very uneasily doesn't it with this very high tech um and and very often impersonal way in in which medicine seems to present itself today and certainly at this period of crisis when so often uh, the experience of patients will be in an intensive care unit surrounded by uh, staff all in this massive personal protective equipment looking like people from another, aliens from outer space. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, again, how the challenge, I think, is to is to be able to uh, communicate this sense of respect, of dignity, of um, the unique value of every patient in the context of a deeply depersonalized uh, health system. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd be, I'd be curious about your thoughts on, uh, I know we're probably coming close to time, is sort of circling back to this question of resource allocation. If we agree that socioeconomic determinants are not good determinants, but we end up in rock and hard place situations with limited resources. Do you have any sort of broad ideas of how we would go about triaging or stratifying? Well, I, I think um, making decisions based on clinical criteria, in other words, um, one of the tragic things that seems to happen with um, COVID is that a lot of people develop this very severe respiratory um, uh, pneumonitis. They require intensive care, which sometimes seems to go on for a long time. 10, 14 days, and then they die. Yep. Uh, and that is catastrophic. It's catastrophic for 
the person themselves because to die after 14 days of intensive care is horrible. To die in an intensive care unit is is a terrible place to die. It's catastrophic for the healthcare system because of all the resources and 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 so on. And so I think trying to use the best skill and uh, possibly even you know high tech ways like including AI to try and work out which of the patient that that is not going to do that um and and if we can predict with a reasonable degree of certainty that this particular patient is going to end up dying in the ITU then we shouldn't be admitting them to the ITU in the first place so so trying to use sophisticated ways of stra- stratifying uh patients and predicting those who have the best chance of responding to ITU, I think is entirely appropriate. And, and from a Christian point of view, I would just call that good stewardship. You know, that is mm-hmm. that is what the concept of stewardship of, of scarce resources means. Um, I think in the meantime, we should be working really hard to try and prevent um, the systems becoming so overwhelmed that we end up with a whole series of patients who meet the good prognostic criteria. In other words, they mm-hmm. have a very good chance of doing well, and we simply don't have enough ventilators. And I have to say this is an advantage of having a sort of nationalized health service because of the possibility of ferrying patients around. It's not ideal, but, you know, of, of, of hospitals collaborating and pooling resources and so on. And, um, I certainly from our experience in the UK so far, I hope and pray that we will not get to that position where we are completely overwhelmed. I, I think if we are overwhelmed, then frankly, although it sounds very crude, I would use the first come first serve principle. I mean, um, in other words, you know, if the patient comes and they meet the criteria and there is a bed available, you treat them first. And if the next person comes and there isn't a bed available, then tragically unless we can ferry out this patient somewhere else then we say well we're very sorry there are no resources available yeah i i totally agree i i think you know a huge part of ethics from any angle is is creative thinking and problem solving i think the the real challenge and tension with that of course is having the information to balance the first come first serve with leaving resources available because it's it's much harder, as you know, from an ethical point of view, or even just a, a you know medical and uh, reputation point of view, um, to withdraw care than it is to not charge in the first place. And so, certainly, if you're committing someone to to a ventilator, then you don't want a situation where you feel like you might have to take them off partway through. And so, that's the balance that none of us really know. But hopefully you know, smart minds are working on all over the places is, is how to how to balance um, that kind of complex risk assessment. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Quentin. This is not only fascinating to hear your conversation, but it actually is uh, deeply humbling to be listening on um, how you um, share, how you would deal with issues and I know you have been and and, and in Quentin's case you continue to be involved on the for- forefront so um, deep thanks from us here at the Quo Vadis Institute for your uh, engagement and conversation and uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us 
for this uh, second installment of the Quovaris Institute's podcast, Rethink. We hope you have been inspired and encouraged to do just that, to rethink. And uh, please join us for the next installments of this podcast soon.